0: One of the most important responsibilities a man will ever have is the discipleship care of his wife. Apart from his affections for Christ and the attention that he provides for his soul, he doesn't have a more significant privilege. Have affection for Christ, then take care of your soul. Point number three, you have a wonderful opportunity to serve your wife by discipling her. Coming alongside her, cooperating with God. Granted, she has a unique relationship with Christ. She can mature in Christ. In fact, she has that responsibility to do that. But you also have a responsibility to nourish and cherish. You are her number one disciple maker. I have said often that my wife is my number one discipler as she speaks into my life. But the reverse is also true, and that's what I want to talk about in this podcast. I have a responsibility to disciple her. Thus, I titled this podcast, A Strong Appeal to Disciple Your Wife. I hope this will benefit you. And if you want to read the article, you're welcome to do that. Go to our website, rickthomas.net. By the way, I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. You are listening to Your Daily Drive This is the podcast where we put our articles in audio format, so you can listen. If you want to, you can read them as well, and by all means, share them with others, either people that you're discipling or people that you want to be speaking into your life. I would love it if a husband and wife would sit down and work through this article and talk about it and let it be one of the building stones that you use to build a wonderful marriage. I have other articles embedded here. What does it mean to nourish and cherish your wife? A second one. Do you know what your wife is thinking? And then a third one. Essential qualities of effect, of an effectual husband. All right, so let's talk about this one here. A strong appeal to disciple your wife. It's a big job. It's a responsibility. It is your calling. It is even more important than the job that you have. A job is a job, and that's all. You could say that a job is a means to accomplish the practical necessities of life, helps you to get food and shelter and other things that you need, and you get these things so that you are situated, so that you can go out and do more important things. And thus the job is just a means to accomplish these practical necessities, but it does not rank high on the list of most important things that I will ever do. Those more critical things, they are the spiritual necessities of your life, like taking care of your own soul, discipling your wife, what I'm talking about here, serving in your local church, and so many other spiritual activities. A job is a means to an end, but it is not the end. Meaning you don't get a job so that you can have a certain kind of identity or so that you can build an empire. That is not the end for a job. The end for a job is to provide those practical necessities so you can do Other things. Jesus took the air out of the over-importance of our jobs in Matthew 6, 25 through 33. Here is some of what he said. He said, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? I think the implication here is clear. God will take care of you. Oh, he's not calling you to be passive, sloppy, lazy, don't do anything, sit on your rear end all day, and I'll take care of you. No, he's not saying that. But what he's trying to get you to guard against is being anxious. He goes on to say, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? And then he goes on to say that what I want you to do is to seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness All of these other things will be added to you. If a man says, my job is to provide for my family, well, that is good. You do want to cooperate with God in providing these practical necessities of life. But if he uses that mantra as a way to justify the neglect of his family, well, then he is outside the teaching of God's Word. Jesus put a man's job in a proper perspective. Now, there are several good points you could draw from his view in Matthew 6, and you can read it if you want, starting in verse 25 through 33. But I just want to highlight two points out of that. One is God will provide. God provides. And then number two, God's purpose. Let's talk about this idea of God providing Now, we do not have a call to be lazy. We are called to provide for our family, as other scriptures teach. But we also possess an underlying confidence that God will take care of us, especially when there are challenges in providing for your family. He provides in the good times and during the hard times. And we aren't to be lazy, but we also aren't to be anxious Now, too many men make too much of their jobs as they wrap their identities and sense of worth around what they do for a living. What they should be doing for a living is much more significant than working nine to five or whatever your hours may be. A job can help them spread God's fame if that job is understood as serving a higher end. And it serves by releasing a person to accomplish greater spiritual things for God's kingdom, We pursue work not to find ourselves, but to create a means to put God's name on display. Your job works for you, not the other way around. There's no need to be job-centered. God calls you to work, but he also says when things get rough, he will take care of you. Now, this worldview on work frees you to remove the accent mark from an Over-important view of vocation while releasing you to do greater things in God's kingdom. Now that brings me to my second point, God's purpose. The greater things have a spiritual dynamic to them. Jesus is releasing the working man and the working woman from worrying while calling them to focus on matters of a spiritual nature, like building God's kingdom, not a personal empire. Work provides a means for food and shelter. It allows the worker the opportunity to think about spiritual elements of his life, like discipling his wife. And so with work not being the center of his universe, he can fulfill his strategies to make God's name great by seeking his kingdom first of all. Now, of course, the common sense starting place for kingdom pursuits is by building up those who are closest to you. The order is quite simple. As you are seeking to make God's name great in your world, here's the order in which you should be doing it. Number one, focus on yourself. Making sure you're spiritually fit. Always addressing your affections for Christ and how to practically live well in His world. If you don't take care of yourself spiritually, you'll not be able to take care of anyone else. In fact, when marriages break down and the husband has not been discipling his wife well, if you back it up one link in the chain, you'll find out that he hasn't been taking care of himself well either. And so the order, a strategy, a common sense strategy for kingdom pursuits is take care of yourself. Number two, in order, your wife. Number three, your children, if you have them. And then number four, other people who are close to you, but that is the order. Paul said it would be better if you didn't have a wife and kids, for that matter, by implication, but God does not call everyone to singleness. Most people are not called to singleness. They're called to be married. Therefore, this order is the majority report for most Christians. Take care of yourself Disciple your wife, disciple your children, and then disciple others. You do not want to get this order out of order. If you do have a wife and children, it would be odd to care for the souls of others while neglecting your soul or the souls of your family. Now this brings us back to the original point of this podcast, a strong appeal to disciple your wife. One of the most important jobs a man will ever have is the discipleship care of his wife. The reason she is next in line to receive his attention outside of himself is that she is an extension of himself. Ephesians 5 is really clear. Paul said in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. The church is the body of Christ, and Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. And that is the biblical picture that we see for a husband relating to his wife. The biblical husband would not neglect the spiritual nourishment of his total self. And his whole self includes his wife. If he did overlook the soul care of his wife, it would be like feeding half of his body. I mean, that would be insanity. He would eventually die, and if he overlooks the soul care of his body, of his wife specifically I'm speaking of, their marriage would die spiritually. This worldview makes her spiritual growth and biblical maturity vital to him. He should see this not only as an opportunity, but as a strong call to be on the job he has a job to do to disciple his wife. Now, this requirement raises the question of how to do this and what's involved. When you think about caring, uh, caring for your wife, what do you think? How do you do it? I suppose if you polled 100 Christian husbands and asked them how they discipled their wives, most of them would say something along the, along the following lines. We pray together. We read the Bible together. We work through books together. We talk about God together. We go to church together. And I pray for my wife these are the common responses, and none of them are wrong, by the way. In fact, all of them are good, and they can serve real spiritual needs in a wife's life. But this list has holes in it. For example, you can go through countless books together with your wife and not experience marital or personal transformation. Going to church, reading the Bible, praying together barely goes beyond the surface of your lives, It fails to reach your wife's heart adequately. The list is good for general things to do. You don't want to stop doing those things, but you must have a more comprehensive plan. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter 3, 7. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You get the sense of a more comprehensive plan in Peter's words to husbands, especially his use of the word understanding. Live with your wives in an understanding way. That word has a depth to it. That word implies your wife needs to be discovered, excavated, assessed from within her soul. And though it may be a bit dramatic, I have explained this idea this way to some husbands that I have counseled in the past. I've said this many times to many men. It goes something like this. Husband, your job is to take your wife by the hand and walk her down into her heart. It's a dangerous journey, but one that needs your courage and your grace and your leadership. And once you both get inside her soul, you walk around for as long as you need, your job is to ask a lot of questions. Be careful about making assumptions, judgments, or even criticizing what you see. The more that you learn about your wife, the more that you see inside of her, the core of her being her thought center the more you will be have, you will have to guard yourself and you want to be careful about how you communicate having judgments or criticizing or assumptions and that reaction could shut her down for example you may discern something in her and point to it and ask what is that explain that to me You may probe in another area asking specific questions that pertain to how she thinks and processes things. Be brave, be daring, be a humble and gracious leader. The more you walk around inside of her heart, the more you will understand her as Peter is suggesting. And the more you know her, the more you will be able to serve her. You can't serve her effectively or you can't create customized care unless you know her. And so you want to know her in the most objective and explicit ways. Nobody needed to tell Jesus what was inside of people because he knew what was inside of folks. Now, of course, some people would say, well, I'm not Jesus, and you are correct. You are not the Savior, and that's why I'm appealing to you to get help from her. Talk to her. Disciple her in community and interact with her. Don't assume, ask. Your wife is your helper, complementer. Ask her to help you so that you can help her. And as you do your walkabout in the heart, ask her what you don't know. Get her to explain herself to you. Understand your wife. It may be a dangerous journey but it's a satisfying one that will reward both of you for many years to come. And so I say some version of this. I've said some version of this to many husbands through counseling. You want to enter into her heart and and do that walkabout and try to discern how she desires things and functions and the passions that she has. And you want to love her well and practically. And so as you interact with her, you will be able to do what Peter said, live with her in an understanding way. Now, that's theoretical, what I just shared with you. Let me give you a practical illustration of what I'm talking about. And I'll share with you something that we have historically done throughout our marriage. For example, Lucia goes to a lady's small group. She's done that historically For many, many years, different groups, different churches, different times, and she meets with these ladies every so often, and because I want to care for her, that meeting provides an opportunity for us to think through the gathering that she is about to have, as well as think through whatever may be going on in her soul. And so before her get-togethers, I ask her typically two questions that cover the meetings and her soul. The first question is a functional question. I ask her, what are some things you would like to accomplish in your meeting? Just trying to get an idea of what she's thinking about as she's been processing going to this small group of ladies. But then I also want to ask her an ontological question, a state of being question. Not so much pragmatic or functional or operational about what is happening in the meeting, but this is about what is going on in your heart regarding the meeting. Maybe some individuals within the meeting. Are you struggling with anyone? Or is there anyone that you really want to cozy up to and speak into their life and share some things because God has put them on your heart? Now, did you pick up on the two types of questions and the two levels in which they point? The first question is a practical, functional question. What are some of the things you want to do at the meeting? The second question is about her heart, her soul. And how she may or may not be struggling with the meeting or with any of the ladies in the small group, or how she may want to care for someone because she has a burden for one of the ladies. I wanted to know, pertaining to this second question, any fears she may have had regarding some of the things she wanted to accomplish. Specifically, was she struggling with the fear of man? about communicating with others as she thought about the courage or boldness she would need to lead in asking probing questions. Now, perchance she had some inhibitions about meeting or hidden sinful attitudes. I wanted to walk with her through those. There'd be no way of knowing what was going on in her heart without asking her, and that's what I was saying earlier. You take her by the hand. Walk inside of her heart and just ask soul-searching questions. Serve her that way. After she arrives home from the meeting, almost always we spend time debriefing from that gathering. She'll share a lot of functional aspects of the group. We laughed at this. We had potato chips or you know, maybe they had carrots and celery. And we'll talk about that and so forth, but then we'll transition and I want to talk about her heart issues too. I want to know what she did functionally and how she processed what happened at a heart level. You see, we live in two worlds and both worlds need exploring the functional behavioral realities and the inward heart realities. One of the things that can hinder this kind of reciprocal discussion between a husband and a wife is the wife's unwillingness to be exposed to her husband. If she's not vulnerable, he'll not be able to go with her on their heart exploration. I said their heart exploration. I suppose some wives would be listening to this thus far and somewhat gnarl up inside. They don't feel the freedom to be that open with their inward thoughts, especially to their husband's. Now there can be several reasons for this. I won't give you an exhaustive list, but I'll share five reasons of why a wife could listen to a podcast like this and think maybe possibly, yeah, I would love to have that kind of relationship with my husband, but just the thought of it makes me gnarl up inside because we aren't there. In fact, we're nowhere near there and it just sounds like a bridge too far to to be able to have that kind of intimate back and forth conversation and there could be several reasons of why that she feels this shriveling of her soul to think about this idea with her husband number one and this is not in any order by the way but she has a weak relationship with god could be in her mind god is not more significant than say like say her husband or more significant than other things she has a small god a weak relationship with god well if she does It will be hard for her to cooperate with her husband and for them to engage in mature conversation. You can't do what I'm asking with a weak relationship with God. Number two, she's had a bad experience, like, say, from a difficult dad who was mean to her. And that past experience shapes her, motivates her to shut down when someone seeks to pry into her life, even if it's her husband. I cannot... In this podcast even began to talk about the importance of dads, particularly in their relationship with their children. And if you don't work at having a grace-centered culture in your home, it can have an adverse effect on these children, and it can manifest in their future marriages. Number three, she's never had an example of what it's like to be open and honest and transparent and vulnerable about all things in her life. And there are a lot of people like that. They just don't know how to do it because they don't even have a category for this because they haven't seen it, hasn't been modeled for them. Number four, she's a private person who has not been completely freed by the gospel. While the gospel powerfully triumphs over our sin, she is still not more than a conqueror, choosing to hide behind shyness and fear. And then finally, and it may be the most important one of all, Her husband has not created a context of grace in the home that is conducive to the unveiling of the heart. The last point here was the issue in our home. I was super insensitive to my wife in the early years of our marriage. Through my harsh words, I was shutting her down, not providing a context that released her to spread her wings and fly in the safety of a grace-filled home. The analogy that we use then and use now has become a humorous metaphor, but we use the analogy of a buffalo and a butterfly. Now, guess guess my role. (laughs) Yeah, I was the one stomping and snorting through the house. She was the delicate and dainty butterfly that was shriveling up by the day. It was when I came to terms with the gospel that I began to realize my insensitivity. I was not loving enough to probe the soul of my wife the way my Savior penetrated my soul. I was not cooperating with God in the sanctification goals that He had for my wife. The Lord gave her to me, and she became part of me. We were one flesh, not two, and thus I was hating myself. I was treating her as though she was an anomaly that did not belong to my body. No one ever hated his flesh, but I did hate me by my insensitivity, insensitive actions toward my wife. As God motivated me to create a context of grace in our home, she had to step into that context of grace to benefit from it. Now, that can be tricky if you have a pattern of being insensitive towards your wife and then you begin to repent and you. You say, well, baby, I've repented, and so now you have a responsibility, too. It's right here in this article. Well, you want to be careful about that. Just because you're there and ready to go, well, she's still working through a whole lot of hurt that you have put on her. And so you have to be careful. We both needed to change, but it doesn't mean that you both will change at the same time or at the same pace. By grace, by the grace of God, we did begin to change. Now, caring for my wife is more in-depth and more comprehensive than the standard Bible reading plan and praying now and then, those Christian expectations. Caring for my wife involves taking the Word of God and prayerfully bringing a particular application to a unique individual. In this case, that unique individual is my wife. God does not give us cookie-cutter care, and He does not want us to do that with others. We're caring for unique souls that the Savior died to restore. He gives unique, customized attention to His children, and we should do similarly. To use an analogy, you're not restoring just any car. You're restoring a specific vehicle, That is different from any other car in the junkyard. No offense, wise, but we all came from the junkyard. Your wife was rescued from the junk heap of humanity and placed in the body of Christ by the power of the gospel, and then God gave her to you. You have a responsibility to cooperate with God in the restoration of your wife. It is one of the highest callings, and there is no question that your wife can cooperate with God and sanctify herself. In fact, she has a responsibility to do that. She must do that. She can't be passive and inactive and nonchalant about a relationship with Christ. She has a, a job to do to discipline herself, to build herself up in God as He works inside her. She has to work out her salvation with fear and trembling. But when it comes to the marriage relationship, you, you both have a responsibility. In fact, you could take this podcast here, and just flip it around, make a few little changes, and say this is the responsibility of the wife as well toward her husband. I could title the podcast, instead of saying, a strong appeal to disciple your wife, I could say, a strong appeal to disciple your husband. You have that responsibility. And it requires both of you to be in a place of vulnerability where you are willing to receive that care from each other. But in this podcast, I'm primarily talking to the husbands to come alongside their wives, take them by their hands and lead them into their hearts and look around and try to discern what's going on inside. As Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and if there's any behavioral, long-term, sustainable behavioral change, it is because you've been changed from the inside out. Therefore, husband, it is on you uh, to help her to cooperate with God as you work together with your wife to mature her. As Peter said, that you have that responsibility to dwell with her in an understanding way. You are heirs. She is an heir with you of the grace of life. He said if you don't do this, your spiritual life, in this case, he said your prayers will be hindered. If you want to talk about this, let me know. Go to our website, rickthomas.net. Jump on our forums, ask your questions. It would be a joy to talk to you. Your Daily Drive is a production of RickThomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to RickThomas.net. RickThomas.net.